The main thing missing from US strategy in Asia is a trade pillar. You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in US news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello, I'm Jared Monkman, Director of Research at the U.S. Study Center at the University of Sydney. And before we get started, I first want to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the EUR nation and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. I'm excited to bring along two colleagues to today's conversation, uh, talking about what just happened in the world of trade negotiations, economic security, and trade deals. So we have APEC and IPEF and all sorts of other um, acronyms that we're going to get into. But first, let me uh, introduce my colleagues. We have Ely Channer, who's the director of our economic security program here at the U.S. Study Center, our inaugural director, I should add, and who has been covering a wide range of, of economic security issues. But fortunately for us, that includes um, trade. Now, we also have Sam Garrett, who is a research associate at the U.S. Study Center, and who has also recently published a sort of guide to IPEF, giving us an understanding of where this uh, economic negotiation stands and what Australia should really know about it, especially from a US perspective. Now, before we get started, can I just confirm, Haley and Sam, that you are okay on giving us a, a number for our behind the numbers um, uh, part of our podcast? Yes, sure am. Great. Glad to hear that. All right, now let's get started. I'll, I'll go to you first, Haley. Um, in terms of economic groupings and many acronyms, what are sort of these key economic groupings that Australia is a part of, and why is it important in Australia's view or in Canberra's view to be a part of it? Thanks so much, Jared. Well, yes, we've had a big couple of weeks in terms of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation meeting that happened in the United States. And Australia is a member of a number of regional groupings that include trade. Um, so in addition to being a member of APEC, Australia is also a member of RCEP and CPTPP. So there'll be sort of alphabet soup during this podcast. So RCEP is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership and CPTPP is the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is the Trans-Pacific Partnership reborn after the United States withdrew. Um, and as we'll talk about a little bit later, there is a new player on the block and that is IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. But our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, went to APEC a few weeks ago and he met with other world leaders there and even though there's economic in the title of APEC, over the years, APEC has moved on from just being a meeting of world leaders to discuss economic issues to a meeting which discusses security issues as well. So the biggest announcement out of APEC was that there was a meeting between President Biden and President Xi Jinping. And they talked about various different things, whether that was military to military communication or things like what's happening in the Middle East. But there were also important developments on the trade and economics front. So, for example, the CPTPP that involves Australia, Japan, Canada and a number of other countries, um, they met and discussed about how to increase their membership because the United Kingdom has been accepted as a member and will 
theoretically come on board as a, a fully fledged member next year. So there are developments that happen um, at APEC. And uh, this was one of the first meetings after a break through COVID. But it is really important that Australia is present at these events and it, it does provide an opportunity to talk with other world leaders. So that's sort of a snapshot. Um, and also just to let you know, to give you a, a sense of the size of these regional groupings, RCEP is by far the largest trade agreement. It has 15 different countries. Um, it represents 30% of the world's population and 30% of global GDP. And CPTPP, in contrast, is much smaller. It used to include the United States, but now that it doesn't include the US, it accounts for about 14% of global GDP and about 6% of global population. So that gives you a sense of the size of these agreements. Thanks for that, Haley. Um you talked about the U.S. not being in TPP or now CPTPP anymore. Why is it important for the U.S. to be in these agreements? And how exactly did IPEF come about? So when we think about bilateral relations and multilateral groupings on trade, when you think of bilateral trade agreements, we call them free trade agreements, FTAs. And the reason that countries engage in bilateral trade is to mutually lower tariffs between partners so that it becomes uh, cheaper to do business and you get more market access into another country. Um, so basically, both countries benefit and um, free trade agreements can take many years to negotiate. But when you're doing a a regional or a multilateral trade agreement, they can also take quite a long time. And the benefit of doing a multilateral agreement over just a straight bilateral FTA is that when you're doing a, an agreement among a whole group of countries, you get the opportunity to set the standards and the rules of the road for how trade is done. So, for example, um, RCEP doesn't include a lot of strong regulations, but it does mutually lower tariffs. CPTPP, on the other hand, includes much tougher regulations and encourages higher standards in different countries, whether that's um, in environment or labour um, or in regulation and basically just how countries do business with one another. It encourages um, a better quality and standard of living for people in those countries. So that's the reason why you would do multilateral trade agreements. When you think about RCEP, the largest member of RCEP is China. So although RCEP was led by ASEAN countries, the largest member is China. And by increasing trade between the different members of RCEP um, and having China as the largest market within that grouping, what that does is allow China to influence how business is done between different countries and set the norms and standards for how business is done. So it's in the United States' interest to be part of the regional trade architecture. It's not currently a member of any regional trade grouping um, and it does have um, FTAs with a number of countries in the region, but there's only a handful of countries, um, Australia comes to mind. Uh, so it's really important that if the US wants to influence higher quality standards and get more market access into the Indo-Pacific, um, which is the largest sort of trade and economic region, it really does need to be involved in a grouping. And that's why it's launched this Indo-Pacific Economic Framework after it removed itself from the TPP. And can I just ask one follow-up? 
Anyway, does Australia have a preference for the U.S. and, and their role in the region from your view? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the U.S. needs to be involved in the region and Australia has been quite vocal in encouraging the U.S. to to come into the region and to set its own standards. Um, I know our foreign minister, Penny Wong, has really encouraged the United States to be more active in trade. And also uh, Australia's ambassador to the US, Kevin Rudd, has used the quote um, from the Clinton administration when talking about what was missing in the US strategy in Asia. Uh, Ambassador Rudd said, it's the economy stupid um, because the US has a fantastic network of military alliances and it has strong diplomatic relations and it's also got a development and aid program. The main thing missing from US strategy in Asia is a trade pillar. And so it's in Australia's interest that the US stays involved because we want the US engaged and the reason we want the US engaged is because it presents such a massive market and that provides the carrot for countries to adopt higher quality standards is so that they can gain access into the US market and then they benefit. And then in this sense, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. You can get um, developing countries to increase their wealth and prosperity through extra trade. So that's partly why Australia really wants the US involved in the region and is and it's a reason why countries that had negotiated the TPP with America for almost a decade, for nine years, countries like Australia and Japan and others, they are still willing to negotiate a new agreement, IPEF, with the United States, even though there's this threat sort of hanging over our heads that with a new president next year, uh, you know, we might not see IPEF continue. So there is a lot of eagerness from the region to see the US stay engaged on the trade front. Now, that's a perfect transition to Sam. You did a wrap on, on IPEF and what's in it. Could you just give us an overview of what it is? I mean, this is what the Biden administration has been championing for some time now as evidence of their economic engagement in the region. But could you give us an idea of what is IPEF, what's in it, and, and what, what does it actually mean, uh, especially in... Um, looking forward from given what's transpired in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, as you say, this has been really central to uh, the Biden administration's regional economic policy. Um, and essentially, IPEF is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. So it's this economic initiative that President Biden announced in May of last year. Uh, it involves 14 countries across the Indo-Pacific, and it's built across four different pillars. So these are trade supply chains, clean economy, and fair economy, which those last two effectively sort of refer to just uh, clean energy and climate change and anti-corruption measures. Um, you know, Biden says that uh, this sort of speaks to what he calls a, a foreign policy for the middle class, uh, an emphasis on, on labor rights and, and fairness in contrast to uh, to other previous um, agreements, which um which in the U.S. have really sort of been tainted uh, and seen as as ultimately unfair agreements. Um, you know, so what IPEF is is really not is a is a traditional trade deal with with market access and um, elimination of tariffs. Uh, but what it is instead is a so-called framework um, involving what they uh, what the U.S. says uh, is invest incentives and opportunities, um, which is really a, a much vaguer, um, broader kind of. Um, uh, term that uh, the region's really been looking to get more clarity on um, over over months of negotiations. 
Um, but you know, the 14 states that, that make up IPEF are, are really diverse. Um, some of them are very dependent on China for trade. They have different priorities, different sizes. You've got everything from, from countries as large as India to, to those that are as small as Fiji in the Pacific. Um, but there's also really significantly, I think, to IPEF a, a US domestic challenge. Um, not only does IPEF need to align with its foreign policy interests, but politically it has to be sellable to, to the US population um, back at home, and particularly in the context of, of the 2024 election. Um, and so the Biden administration and the negotiations has been walking this sort of fine line of trying to avoid, criticize, uh, avoid criticism from, from both major US parties. And the result is that you have some things uh, to do with IPEF that are really popular in the US domestically, but are really hard to sell abroad. Um, you know, things like stronger labor standards, which are hard to get uh, other members to sign up to without really clear, strong incentives. Um, but there are other things that regional states are looking for, like digital trade agreements that really ultimately just aren't currently workable in the, in the US domestic political context. And those are much more unlikely to happen. So, you know, IPEF is a bit of everything and a bit of nothing. We're still sort of yet to see exactly what the final form of it takes, but it, but the idea of it has certainly been central to, to Biden's uh, regional economic policy and, and how he's been trying to frame his, his administration's engagement with the region. I think it's also important to note, Jared, about why IPEF is the way it is and the fact that we are judging it now. It is not currently an agreement. It is the negotiation for an agreement. So it's it's unfair to judge it right at this point because it doesn't yet exist. Some of the pillars have been agreed by the parties, but we are seeing in a very public way the difficult negotiations between a large group of countries, 14 different countries, from the most sort of basic developing nations to extremely wealthy, some of the world's wealthiest countries. So creating common standards across that huge range of capabilities is really difficult. But also, I guess, to understand for our listeners why IPEF exists, you know, how did we get this monstrosity of an agreement? And the background to that is because when um, Donald Trump became president, he withdrew the United States from the TPP negotiations saying that it harmed American manufacturing and American jobs in the same way that NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, affected the, the United States where there's this perception, incorrect perception, I believe, that Mexico um, took a lot of American jobs. And so Trump played on that narrative and withdrew the country from TPP. So now you have President Biden trying to rectify the fact that the US doesn't belong to a trade architecture in the region. And he's created this agreement, which doesn't include lower tariffs for greater market access in the US. So that appeases the people on the left and the right in America who don't believe in free trade. But IPEF includes all the other components to a free trade agreement. But it's a bit like the case of needing to eat your veggies because all of these different components of IPEF, whether it's you know, anti-corruption measures, better environmental standards, better labour standards, if you don't have the carrot of more market access into the US, then countries don't have an incentive to spend all that money to increase their standards. So it's not attractive to countries in the same way that a free trade deal would be attractive. And Biden's in this impossible position of trying to appease his domestic constituents, but then also keep the members of IPEF together so that they agree to spend money and invest in bettering themselves for the distant prospect of 
increased access into the US because the the only carrot that IPEF negotiators from America have at the moment is to say to Southeast Asian nations, to Fiji, if you increase your standards, uh, American companies will be more interested in investing in you and in locating their businesses in your countries. But until that happens, it's just going to cost a lot of money. So countries are wondering, well, why should I set, sign up to this agreement if there's no immediate benefit and how are they going to sell it to their domestic constituents? So there's a reason for why IPEF came about, but now we're also in this really difficult predicament of keeping the agreement together and convincing countries about why it's valuable. And a lot of that is a future prospect of um, access into US markets. And, and that is also the hope that that this will become a free trade agreement by stealth, particularly if you do not have a, a Trump president in 2024 or a Trump-like candidate. If you have a different candidate who is um, more predisposed to free trade, then IPEF would actually have a decent chance of becoming a fully-fledged trade agreement. Thanks for that, Haley. I guess one question I have then for you, Sam, having looked at IPEF closely, you talked about the four pillars, and um, we know that USTR has been doing the first pillar on trade, but commerce has been doing the other pillars on supply chains, clean energy, decarbonization, infrastructure, and tax and anti-corruption. Um, where are we on progress on these uh, different uh, pillars? And is anything significant occurring from what I've seen? It seems like, as, as Haley said, um, they're really highlighting the not only the opportunity for U.S. firms to engage more, but the tangible announcements of U.S. firms. This is really a public-private partnership type of approach to um, trade negotiations, which is in many ways unprecedented for the U.S. But wh where are we on, on these pillars? Yeah, well, so, you know, we've just recently had the APEX Summit, as you were saying, in, in San Francisco. Um, and the U.S. in really previous months had been saying they were looking for to have substantial progress, is what they would say, in uh, negotiations i think they said early harvest announcements right which is remarkable given that they've uh early harvest usually occurs early on but they've been negotiating like that for a few years now right yeah look it's um it's certainly not uh we didn't see the outcomes i think from my from apec that uh the us had really been hoping for um you know there were some announcements that did um come out of it uh we saw uh, the U.S. announced something called the IPEF Investment Accelerator, which is designed to strengthen investment in, in IPEF members, uh, and the IPEF Networks Initiative, uh, to, which is sort of a new initiative to, to improve academic exchanges and business-to-business and -business ties between member states. Um, and importantly, we did see, the one, the signing of the Supply Chains Agreement at APEC, um, which had previously been concluded in May. Uh, and we also saw the conclusion of negotiations on the clean economy and fair economy pillars. Um, so, you know, that's fairly significant. Um, you know, they have been negotiating this agreement for a while, but the first round of negotiations was only in December of last year. So, you know, this is a pretty fast pace for these sorts of agreements. Um, but, you know, importantly, what we didn't see at APEC was a conclusion on the trade pillar. Um, that's a pillar that's been particularly difficult in negotiations. Um, India is is not a party to that pillar, um, and you know it's one of probably the most fraught sort of negotiations, uh, just because of the range and diversity of interests at play. As Haley was saying, but you know in this case it really seems that domestic U.S. political pressure was a big cause of uh, U.S. slowdown in negotiations, uh, because of concerns about how 
um, you know, what would effectively be or look like a trade agreement uh, might play in the 2024 election. Um, so essentially, the, you know, that's fairly disappointing for the Biden administration, I think, um, who'd been really sort of pushing the idea that they'd be able to really have some some major conclusions of, of IPEF overall in time for APEC. Um, but it's also disappointing for, for the other regional members, um, you know, who I think in a lot of cases are seeing this as, as yet another uh, wavering um, in the US of, of their position of trade. Um, and, you know, shaking a lot of confidence in terms of their commitment to, to these sorts of agreements. Um, you know, so we're likely to see, uh, you know, announcements on, on anti-corruption measures. We're going to see things on, on decarbonization efforts and tax evasion. Um, but, you know, areas for trade cooperation are likely to be heavily scaled back. Um, you know, it's going to focus on much smaller things like, uh, you know, electronic signature standards or, or alignment on, on digital customs forms. But we're unlikely to see a, a major overarching thing on uh you know, digital trade as, as a sort of sweeping agreement. Um, and, you know, that's not necessarily entirely unexpected, um, but for the Biden administration, who'd, who'd really been hoping for for some really major announcements out of this summit, it's, it's probably a bit disappointing. Just to add to what Sam was saying too, I feel sorry for the United States in the difficult position that it's in, but also the fact that they did set themselves an impossible timeline. Because they were hosting APEC, they wanted a big announcement and it takes almost a decade to negotiate other trade deals, multilateral trade deals. Like for example, RCEP took eight years to negotiate and before the US withdrew from TPP, it was nine years that countries had been negotiating. So if you consider that negotiations only started in proper for IPEF last year, we're only about 12 months of actual negotiations and it is really difficult. I mean, part of the strength of IPEF is what you mentioned, Sam, the plurilateral aspect to it where different countries can opt in or opt out of different parts. So as you mentioned, India's opted out of the trade pillar. And when we say the trade pillar, it, it's not free trade. The main part of the trade pillar is this digital agreement for standard setting. Um, and there's also some concern about the US position on that because it looks like there's some internal disagreement within the United States about how to treat the digital trade part in terms of how they think about big tech companies and some senators wanting to be really tough on big tech um, and other parts of the government thinking that there should just be um, more free trade and so the digital component should be enhanced as much as possible including leverage for or leeway for these big tech companies. I'll just add that the US position on trade as actually on digital trade in particular is quite a departure from my view. Like in the past, if you just have to look at USMCA to see that the US had basic um, had basically agreed to continue its policy of of trying to eliminate data localization rules, trying to allow for more free flow of information and all the stuff. And um, now it looks like um, I think the sort of centrists are complaining that the more the more extreme wings of the party, especially the left wing of the Democratic Party, is trying to implement a policy on digital trade that they are unable to implement in Congress. And so they're saying, oh, maybe we can score some runs against big tech companies through our external facing trade negotiations. But somehow it's, from my view, this is unprecedented for a USTR to, to take this approach. And it seems like there's some tension between the USTR and uh, the White House and Commerce on this. 
A hundred percent, Jared. And having that public discussion, I think, is really unhelpful for confidence in IPEF, particularly going into the US 2024 presidential election campaign, because there's now a lot of reports that countries are worried about how the negotiations will go, especially now Trump came out recently and said um, he would knock out um, what he is calling TPP2 immediately after taking office. So considering the countries that are in IPEF that were in TPP, that's got to create nightmares for them if you think you dedicated almost a decade of your life to negotiating an agreement um, that if President Trump comes back into office that IPEF would just be killed as well. It's a real shame because there is not a lot in it that could draw the ire of, you know, anti, anti-trade candidates. The reason that Trump says that he's against it um, is because of the potential for it to hollow out US manufacturing and cause job losses. I don't know if that's actually something that it could do. Jared, what do you reckon? I mean, I can't imagine because there is no free trade element. How is it going to hollow out American manufacturing? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great question. I, from my view, I, I think the Trump administration really brought some really important questions about the role of trade and, and whether trade is good or bad that we had sort of um, not really questioned for a long time. And um, I think from my view, there's been a lot of studies on this and there has been undeniably a hollowing out of America's manufacturing. Um, and the question then is, was that caused by trade agreements? Or was that caused, and, and if so, which trade agreements? And I think anyone who lives in those places where you saw job losses, um, some may say it's nice, but I think a lot of people say it's the WTO. And it was just, it was China and it was the broad, WTO, again, stands for World Trade Organization. It was a global trade agreement where the U.S. exposed itself globally. And at the same time, it saw that manufacturing, businesses saw manufacturing in China was cheaper than manufacturing in the U.S. Um, and I, I think it, it, a lot of people feel that there's a lot of evidence to prove that as manufacturing increased in China, manufacturing decreased in the U.S. But I think that, that question that I talked about before is an important one because a lot of politicians want more manufacturing around the world and especially in the developed world they tolerate manufacturing jobs but i think gary cohen the foreign national economic advisor to uh donald trump said not many americans want to be standing on a manufacturing floor all day long so it's a question of what type of manufacturing and um i think high-end advanced manufacturing americans may want where they're designing things and it's collaborative but just standing on a factory floor you know of the um where, where you're just looking at a line and just and using your hands and not using your brain at all, that's, that's a different type of thing. And those jobs went, but the question of, in my view, whether they want them back or not is an important one. Yeah, just to sort of follow up on that then, do you think, Jared, that's the reason why there's there's this divergent views in the US between the National Security Council on one hand and then um, the U.S. trade representative on the other in terms of how they're approaching e-commerce and other digital trade is because there's disagreement on the causes for why there was a hollowing out of U.S. manufacturing jobs? I think that's part of it, but I think it's also politics. And, and just they want to get rid of the weapons that are used against them. One of those weapons is saying you are too um, oriented to trade with other countries and, and, and 
the more, and we're going through a bit of a isolationist moment in the U.S. right now. So there's sensitivity to trade agreements. But, you know, our own polling on this shows that Americans are not fully convinced that trade is all bad. We, we found that a, a plurality of Americans are actually in favor of trade agreements. And even uh, amongst Trump voters, only 40% are against joining a TPP-like arrangement. Um, so the, 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 in my view, the, the issue is probably overblown. And I think where Washington is, is maybe not where the rest of America is. Because, because I don't think a lot of Americans are going to the ballot box to vote on trade. But the, it's, it's it, in my view, it's a, there's a uh, chasm between the elites in Washington and the rest of the country. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to talk so much, but but you asked some great questions, Haley. Thank you. Um, one one question that I have for you, Haley, in as the director of our economic security program, there's been nothing when you mention economic security. There's been nothing that comes to mind more than the economic security resulting from more secure supply chains. It seems like IPEP may have gotten some progress on this, but I would love to hear your thoughts on whether um, their concluding of an agreement is actually substantive or not. Because in my view, as, as much as people criticize IPEF, I think it, it was a necessary form for discussions on issues like supply chain, which were just not in really other any other trade agreements or, or trade negotiations up to now. Yeah, so supply chains was the first pillar of IPEF that there were substantial agreement on between the members. And I think that was driven by the fact that recognition between all of them coming out of the COVID pandemic and also seeing China's coercive use of trade in terms of cutting off trade to Japan in 2010 um, and cutting off trade with Australia in the last couple of years, uh, countries realise they're really dependent on each other for efficiency and low-cost trade and that if we have more robust supply chains, then we're not going to get caught out with pharmaceuticals or other products that we desperately need. So there was early agreement between IPEF members on a supply chain um, agreement. Um, they've announced three lines of effort, a supply chain council, a supply chain crisis response network, and a labor rights advisory board. And each one of those three things has a, its own separate agenda. But I think ultimately the crisis response mechanism is the strongest of the three. It en enables each country to notify the other of an impending bottleneck or lack of supply so that other countries can plan accordingly, either finding other supply from other countries um, or doing something else to secure their supply. Um, the Supply Chain Council, it's meant to come up with a sector-specific action plan for critical sectors in supply chain resilience, such as diversification of sources, infrastructure and workforce development and enhanced logistics. Um, but a lot of this really does rely on the country's adequately funding these initiatives and resourcing them with the right people. But basically, at the moment, I think they're doing a lot of supply chain mapping where they actually understand where each country is getting certain critical goods from. Because if you don't have an overall picture of um, where the supply chains uh, are now, then you won't be able to secure them in future. So that is one of the more important aspects to it. And I think there's also a good case to be made for there are aspects of IPEF that are really valuable or could be really valuable if they were invested in and resourced appropriately. Uh, and that's really important, especially as we go forward in the future. 
Now, I guess I would love to hear moving forward in, in the future on that topic. Um, did we have any forward looking progress at APEC? Do we, what is sort of the future of where the U.S. is in particular on these issues? It seems like we, as we discussed earlier, that the USTR is in a different place from the rest of the um, government, the U.S. Uh, federal government or, or the um, agencies in particular and, and to our Congress. But what is the, the what are the next steps? Is, is IPEF in trouble? Um, then I guess I'd love to hear from both of you on this one. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I'm not sure about IPEF being in trouble per se. Um, you know, there was progress made around uh, APEC. You know, they did uh, conclude those three other pillars. You know, the, the, those are actual real tangible, um, you know, things that have emerged from the negotiations and, and that will have some degree of impact. Um, you know, obviously, the trade pillar is certainly in a bit of strife. Um but, you know, again, I, I don't think that that's necessarily entirely unexpected. Um, you know, it probably won't be as uh, sort of exciting or transformational as, as maybe some people had hoped. Um, but I think, you know, coming out of APEC and as, as we look into to the year ahead and, and the next few years, um, you know, IPEF uh, is likely to, you know, <laughs> be a real thing. Um, it'll continue to, to have, uh, you know, minor aspects and and you know some actual uh, real impacts as Haley was saying you know the supply chain um, agreements and and initiatives are important um, things that will be useful to to be able to secure the future of those uh, you know really important um, aspects for, for different countries economies but I, I think overall um, you know it, will it be a, a massive transformational new global agreement probably not but I'm not sure anyone really thought that it was going to, um, you know, reach the highest heights that that perhaps it uh, it, it could have. Haley, I mean, I we've 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 spoken with people who are actually negotiating IPEF, and I would hate to see a recurrence of what happened with TPP. I feel like people do gravitate towards criticizing IPEF. I mean, I've, I have heard it called the Indo-Pacific Empty Framework. Um, among other names, but they're like Sam said, they have concluded um, negotiations on three of the four. They've concluded on supply chains, on clean energy, and on anti-corruption. Of course, they have agreed to that because it's non-binding, but there is goodwill there, and there is an you know, if you didn't have IPEF, then you would be lacking some of those benefits. Um, there are, though, concerns, I believe, with Vietnam and Indonesia, for example, declining to commit to stronger label and environmental standards. And this is a problem that countries will face going forward as we go through this clean energy transition where developing nations that um, want to increase their economic output are involved in a lot of dirty business in terms of coal or other polluting um, minerals. And it will be harder for them to spend the money they need to transform their economies um, while they're trying to catch up to the advanced economies who have already polluted and are now changing their ways. So it's expensive for countries to undergo this transition, but I think all countries know that something's got to give and they're also looking to the developed countries of the world to make a bigger effort because those countries can afford it and they were some of the biggest polluters. So I think it's important that we persist with the agreement um, 
I am worried about the 2024 election in the United States, um, but we do need a US involved in the region in a trade agreement of some kind. Um, this is the best we've got for now. So I don't believe that it should be dumped. Um, I think though it, we might see it go on hold for the next 12 months or so. Um, some US administration officials have said they're going to recalibrate their approach after APEC. So there's a lot more work that needs to to go on and a lot more um, incentives for some of the developed nations to make these expensive changes. So, you know, we need to keep going with it. But um, what we will actually end up with, I am not sure. Yeah, I think from my view, just looking at the political calendar and looking at what the Obama administration did on TPP, they really prioritized it, in my view, in the second half or their second term. If Biden is elected, then I think that's uh, that's a, a time frame where I think we might get the most sort of um, uh, efforts and and sort of using the cashing and political um, capital on that. But again, the question is, is that too little too late? All right. Now we're at the point of the podcast where you give me some numbers. Um, do you have a, a stat or a figure for me? Uh, yeah, sure. So my... Uh... I guess stat is, is 27 percentage points, uh, and that was the decline in the share of global GDP of the original TPP agreement um, from 40% of global GDP um, when the US was a part of that agreement and then uh, collapsed to 13% of global GDP when the US withdrew. Um, so I think that really just serves to emphasize you know, how influential um, having a country like the US or China in these sorts of agreements um, can be just the size uh, of their economies that they bring into these agreements. Um, and, you know, after that US withdrawal, that sort of decline in, in its relative importance really shows, I think, why the, why the region is so keen to encourage uh, greater US involvement in the region, um, more economic engagement um, to sort of really try and claw some of that back. Great. Thanks, Sam. Haley. I mean, earlier in the episode, I mentioned that um, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP, was the largest uh, multilateral trade agreement. Um, I said it had 30% of the world's population and 30% of global GDP. If IPEF was successful, because it includes America and India, Japan and others, it would account for much more than RCEP. It would account for 60% of the global population and 40% of global GDP. So it is absolutely massive and we can't lose sight of the potential for this large agreement. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Haley uh, and Sam, for a great conversation. And um, I look forward to more of them as we enjoy the tumultuous ride that is uh, US trade policy moving forward. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Jared. But as we wrap up, I'd like to point out a couple of other podcasts that may be of interest. We have the CEO, Mike Green. He's co-host of the Asia Chessboard podcast with Jude Mike Shep, a Freeman Chair for China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'd also recommend checking out the USC Live podcast series that runs recordings from our major live events. You can find these on our brand new website, usc.edu.au, or wherever you get your podcasts.